1: My guest today is Jesse Alexander who runs the YouTube channel The Great War which will be the topic of this week's episode but before that we're gonna take a little bit of your time to talk about the charity for Ukraine that it runs and I just want to say that I donate to myself and I will recommend everyone else to do the same. A link will be in the description if you want to take a donate. You can donate from 10 dollars to whatever amount you like and First of all, what what is this charity about about your charity for Ukraine?
0: Yeah, thanks so much for having me on the show. By the way, um, I volunteer here in Vienna, where I where I live, with a small charity, a locally run charity called Ukraine, Y O Ukraine, and basically I'm a volunteer there. So I don't run it; it's run by local Ukrainians, and it sends humanitarian aid to Ukraine, and they specialize in medical aid. So medicine, medical devices, medical supplies, bandages, surgical instruments, wheelchairs, uh, all those kinds of things, rehabilitation equipment for people who've been injured and ambulances as well. They've sent about a dozen ambulance vehicles that they've bought and refurbished and sent there. And so I try to be a part of that and I try to help them out because I believe in the cause and I think it's the right thing to do. So I help make people aware. So I hope that anyone listening to this show who's interested in finding a way to help Ukraine directly, because they're not some big bureaucratic international charity that's going to take time, that it's, you know, a lot of the money might go to administration. They're not like that, right? They're a very, very small team of volunteers. No one works. No one gets paid to work with them. And they run out of a donated space, a small storage uh, warehouse and office, and that's what they do. So, and they have skin in the game. They are from Ukraine, the core of the team anyway, and the founders. So I think uh, it makes sense. They're a good choice for direct aid, direct and uncomplicated aid. And they post all over their social media. You know, we sent the truck. It has your generator in it. It ended up here and here's a picture of it and so on. So I think that they are one of those kind of charities that makes sense to give to. So of course I encourage anybody listening who's interested to click on the link and uh, and check them out.
1: Fantastic job, I, I have, and like you said, I recommend everyone else to do the same. Now, let's talk about the Great War, which is known better as the First World War. Let's. And uh, let's, I want to begin with the P- state of Europe before the outbreak of the war, because it it, it it has been at peace for quite some time. Of course, they fought for in colonial wars, etc., but Europe itself been at peace. So so it was it quite a shock when the shot in Sar year came and uh, people wasn't didn't know or was people kind of pumped, pumped for lack of better words for war at that point. Very pre ever prepared.
0: Well now, you've opened up several different interesting cans <laughs> of worms there. First of all, let's talk about uh Europe being at peace for a long time. I mean, yes. It has been at peace in 1914. It has been at peace at least since 1871. But oftentimes we kind of think about it being maybe a bit more peaceful than it actually was because there were quite a lot of colonial wars that different Mm -hmm. European powers were involved with. So yes, there was no great power war since 1871. But even so, many Germans and Frenchmen, still remember 1871, still participated in 1871, were still affected by their experience in 1870, 71. I should say. Um, There's also been quite a bit of research that emphasizes the violence without war. So how much violence was there in European society? How much did people beat their kids? And how did that affect the generations of people? So I think, yes, Europe is at peace in the classical term of there there are no European states uh, going to full-on war against each other, but there was still quite a bit of connections to violence, both through the colonies, and then if you look at it kind of in a more social history sense. And I think that's worth uh, keeping in mind as well.
1: well. One could argue that the Baltimore, China was... Ah, yes, of course. Europe. How could
0: I forget? We we did a, a great episode, a very fascinating episode on the Balkan Wars. Yes, of course, there are wars in the Balkans, not only the two Balkan Wars, but there's a war between Greece and Turkey in 1897 as well. There's the Russo-Japanese War in 1904-05, which, of course, only involves uh, Russia of the European powers. But still, I think that just reinforces, the, reinforces this point that uh, violence is still lurking on the edges and under the surface in European society. And especially in people's minds, war is still a normal and legitimate thing to happen in international politics. And now today, especially for us in so-called Western countries, in Europe and North America, I think since World War II, we've tended to move away from the idea that war is normal and it's going to happen. And sometimes we want to have a war, that it will further uh, the state's interests. that People didn't think that way in 1914. People still assumed that there could be wars and they were a legitimate way of furthering a, a state's interest. Now, they were very cautious about them, because of course they're risky and destructive, but I still think that um, that's a little bit of an underestimated aspect of it, when people think about that. As far as the assassination is concerned, it didn't People didn't expect it to start a war right away. I mean, yes, it, it made some headlines, but at first, at the end of June, it didn't seem like war was going to break out. That only became a real danger later than in July, of course, when the Austro-Hungarians kind of refused the Serbian response to their ultimatum. And then that kind of domino effect begins where everyone uh, everyone ends up getting involved after, after getting involved after Russia mobilizes. So,
1: how long time does the mobilization take before Kaiser Wilhelm and the Central Powers decided that we should declare war because this is because of the shot in Sarajevo and how long time does it take for the forces to move on?
0: Well, I think uh, the question is about the mobilization of the Central Powers.
1: Hmm. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well. What happens is the shot in Sarajevo, the famous shot, it doesn't cause anybody to mobilize right away. Yeah, no, no, nobody's worried about about mobilizing. The when when that first domino, if you will, falls, is when Russia decides to partially mobilize, and this puts Germany in a difficult strategic position, and it pushes on a major weakness that. German planners are a major mistake, I would say, in retrospect, that German planners have committed, which is essentially Germany fears being surrounded by its potential adversaries, right? So France and Russia, on either side of Germany, they have an alliance. And they have this alliance because they fear Germany, right? So if Germany is going to fight both of them, and the German planners assume that if war happens, they're going to have to fight both France and Germany. This creates an issue because you can't fight them both at the same time when they're at full strength, when they're mobilized. So it becomes a game of speed, right? Can Germany mobilize fast enough and attack France quickly enough and defeat them before Russia can fully mobilize because it's so much bigger, the infrastructure is not as good, it will take Russia longer to mobilize. That's at least the assumption that the German planners are working on. So they have this famous plan, right, which you and probably many of your listeners have heard of before, the Schlieffen plan. And this plan basically says, yeah, we're going to mobilize fast in the West. We're going to march into France, defeat them in six weeks or so. Then we're going to shift our army to the East, and then Russia will be mobilized and ready to fight, but we will also be ready to fight them in the East. That's you know the, the famous
1: saying tomorrow in Paris, right? That the Germans had. Sure.
0: And so uh, the problem for the Germans now in this July crisis in 1914 is that the problem starts with Russia and Russia is mobilizing uh, to support Serbia, right? Against Austria-Hungary. But now the Germans are in a in a panic in a way because Russia is already mobilizing. This This means the plan is not going to work. Right? But they don't have another plan. There's this kind of rigid planning cycle that exists partially due to technology like railways and how can you use them? How can you plan for them? But also uh, a little bit of that, that uh, military necessity starts to take over political situations and this makes it very dangerous then because the military logic is inescapable. Then you have to keep going. Otherwise, you're taking a security risk. So what happens is then Germany decides, well, okay, we cannot we cannot uh, go halfway on this, right? Mm. Yes, okay, Ru- Russia has said it's partially mobilizing, which is another story because that was very difficult for the Russians to do only partially. Mm. But this is too much of a threat. And essentially then Germany declares war and invades France, even though that's not where this crisis began. It didn't begin as a German-French crisis or conflict. It began as a Russian-Austrian-Serbian conflict.
1: I want to get back to the Eastern Front, of course, in a, in a little bit, but sure. I want to begin with the Western Front, because okay. trench warfare was a German invention, wasn't it? That The Germans came up with that, but would you say that kind of by creating this trench warfare that we're going to talk about now, that it kind of, that's partially the reason why there was so little territorial gain on the Western Front, that that, that was what was stopping... The territorial gain in the first place, but while well, it saved life, arguably, it also kind of stopped what the gaining of territorial gain. Yes, um,
0: it's interesting. Germans, uh, Germany didn't really fully invent trench warfare, I think they were for most of the war. The reason why we connect them maybe a bit more with successful trench war tactics is because they were on the defensive in the West for most of the war. There are exceptions to that, 1914, 1918. But generally, the Germans are doing more defending in the West. So they invest more in their trench systems, because they want to stay in them for longer. And the trench systems that they're in now are part of the plan to defend. So you end up where the Germans have, on the balance, better trenches, deeper, more reinforced, uh, and so on and so forth, than the Allies do. And partly that's for strategic reasons. They can choose to be on the defensive in the West for some of the time. The Allies, they have a lot of political pressure to attack, to kick the Germans out of the occupied Belgian and French territories. So this is why the German trench systems are generally better, deeper, stronger. But trench systems and trench using trenches as, like, as a part of warfare has existed before. In the Crimean War, they used trenches. In the American Civil War, they used trenches. In the Russo Japanese War, they used trenches as well. Um, what's interesting is that it's a response to the state of the technology of the time, in a way, right? Because the defensive is far more powerful than the yeah. offensive.
1: I, mean, right? attacking... I want to again draw a line to the modern the, the European yeah. war, where you can see that clearly. Defensive is working for Ukrainians, whereas offensive is not working for Russia at the moment.
0: Right, and there are different reasons for that in each uh, in each case. Right, in the mm. First World War, you have very powerful weapons like machine guns and artillery, but they're more effective in defense because the machine guns, especially at the beginning of the war, they're heavy mm. and they're not super mobile, and you need horses to move your artillery guns. Right. Well, if you have a trench system, you're not moving that easily, and your guns can't keep up with your advancing infantry. And normally, the way to have movement warfare, mobile warfare, is that you go around the flank, you go around the side and attack the side of the enemy army, and that's a weak point, and then everything changes and someone wins. Or you break through the middle, and then you send in your cavalry, and they can exploit that they can go in behind the enemy, create chaos and so on. You can't do that when the when trench warfare begins. There is no flank. There's just more trenches all the way to the English Channel. So you can't turn the flank and you can't use cavalry very easily because, well, they're going to get mown down by the machine guns. And it's very difficult if your infantry are advancing, you want to pull up your artillery to support you well, good luck moving your heavy guns through a landscape that has all been churned up and become muddy from uh, artillery fire exploding there and over trenches and so on. So this creates a real dilemma that isn't solved until 1918, until they develop a whole system of combined arms warfare with new artillery techniques, with new infantry tactics, and with the help of tanks, so mobile armored firepower, and then in conjunction with intensive use of aircraft uh, observation as well. So these, all these different pieces, plus some new tactics and technology, have to come together to break the trench deadlock. And of course, that's helped by the fact that Germany is exhausted in, in 1918 as well. So all that has to come together to break the trench warfare deadlock. In the West. In the East, yeah. it's not as much of a deadlock. There's still a lot of movement. There are huge offensives. It goes back and forth. But in the West, that is the case.
1: So, did plan to have, like, like we said, talked about it, and especially in the... i we're mean, going to talk about it by the, by the end of the episode, but uh, in the... in the, as we talked about in the... And the you see this in Sorry, all quiet on the Western Front. That they say you not know, tomorrow in Paris. They didn't plan to take Paris. Right, like kind of in this street sense, and that like you said they didn't didn't intentionally tend to, but just tended to protect the borders in the beginning and then take Paris as if the if the defense was successful.
0: Well, yeah, the the German plan in 1914 was not to attack Paris directly mm. immediately right i mean this makes sense it's a huge huge city yeah. and you're you don't want your army to be absorbed in a in a long siege of such a big city yeah. unless you have to they besieged Paris in 1870 71 but at that point in the franco prussian war right but at that point they had already defeated the french field armies so they had they had the ability to defeat paris there were no other other major Imminent threats to the um, German alliance of armies in in France in 1870-71, but in 1914 you're still dealing with a fully functional, very powerful, very capable French army in the field. So the German idea is well, we'll attack through Belgium and come around on the flank, right, and push the French from actually from the east. So they would come around, make a semicircle, and then come behind the French and you wouldn't have to fight over Paris. You would defeat the French army and then deal with Paris after that. Maybe it surrenders, maybe you have to besiege it for a while, but uh, the army, the French army, is the main target.
1: So let's talk about the Eastern Front for a while. Mm-hmm. And we talked about this on Twitter as well, that the the, East, the Russian army was in a terrible mess when it began the war. So Nicholas II had not modernized the army. It was mis you just got three two three rounds of ammunition and uh, the with uh, it, it was ill equipped with it that way they they weren't very very well trained the soldiers so how how did that, how did this not how did that work for the Russians with such a terrible preparation and with so few ammunition to draw on when they when they started that like mobilizing and then eventually war against Germany? Well I think you know that idea that
0: Russia was so badly prepared, it has become more popular uh, after the war, partially because the Russians lost some important yeah. battles against the Germans at the very beginning, uh, the Battle of Tannenberg, the Battle of Massurian Lakes, right in, in uh, August and September 1914. Then they lose a big battle in 1915 as well with the Gorlitz-Tarnow offensive. But... I think that's been exaggerated in the popular presentations of the war. Um, the Russian army is not as powerful or not as well trained and well equipped as the Germans or the French are, but they're not—they're not as bad as we think they are. Actually, they are. The army is made up of conscripts who have training; they have some decent training. The artillery is not of poor quality, uh, for example. What happens, and at the beginning, they have enough rifles and ammunition. They end up with some shortages of weapons of different kinds, also artillery shells, in 1915. And this is a big reason why they suffer major defeats in 1915, or a partial reason. But in 1914, they're expecting and are expected to perform better than they do. Uh, So things are not quite as bad for the Russian army as maybe we imagine sometimes. The problem for the Russians is they, they really, well, one of the problems that there are many, uh, they were trying to modernize over the previous years, but they had not gotten as far in their plan as they, as they wanted to because they'd been defeated right by the Japanese in 1904 or five. So this, it weakened Russia, but it also spurred some rearmament uh, program, but it wasn't completed in 1914. So they don't have as much equipment as they wanted. Um, But one of their major problems is they have trouble with command and control and coordinating the movements of those armies. And their commanders make mistakes. And this is why they lose so badly in East Prussia, because the two armies that they have advancing into East Prussia, they don't coordinate enough. They don't communicate properly. There's the famous example that they communicate over the radio in the clear right? And this is a lack of professionalism at that uh, in that sense. And so the Germans are able to beat them each separately. Uh, so I think the, the main Russian difficulty is commanding and command decisions uh, with these massive armies. I mean, in history before this, there's never been such massive armies in the field for such a long time. Mm. So it is difficult. Everyone has some issues with command and control. The Germans two of their armies separate as they move differently in France and they go off plan a little bit. This is one of the reasons why the Marne battle of the Marne can happen where the French stopped the Germans in 1914. Uh, And the Russians suffer quite badly from that and lose in East Prussia in 1914. The Austrians suffer terribly from that in 1914 Uh, on the Eastern front, but to the South in in today's Western Ukraine, which at the time, of course, part of it belonged to Austria-Hungary, part of it belonged to the Russian Empire. Um, The Austrians get all separated from each other, and they go too far when they move into the Russian Empire in 1914. And that allows the Russians to get into an advantageous position and inflict a very, very heavy defeat against the Austrians.
1: Something we have to talk about as well is that in Pol- so a little country that is in the way which is Poland and it, as you know it was divided in the 18th century between the great powers Habsburgs, Habsburg Germany and Russia at the time and it seemed to me that what the Germans wanted was an independent Poland after the war when they, when they had won, that they wanted a puppet Poland to work in their fa- their favour is, is this correct or is this just what Nazis well,
0: in, yeah, the, the Germans, of course, as the war goes on and each side becomes more, under more strain and they're willing to make more and more compromises. They're willing to consider different political solutions or geopolitical solutions than they would ever have conceived of in 1914. And Germany's no different. They do float this idea of a semi-independent, Polish kingdom in order to motivate Poles living in Germany, Austria-Hungary, and even in the occupied Russian part of Poland, occupied by the Germans and Austrians, that is, once they capture it in 1915, they want to motivate Poles to fight with the central powers. Of course, the Poles living in Austria-Hungary or in Germany, they can be conscripted into the army and they fight with their respective uh, armies of the states in which they live, but yes there is this uh, there is this idea to create some sort of semi independent polish state which napoleon also did right back in the yeah. day the duchy of warsaw in uh, in 1807 uh, he created for the similar reason right to to use in a conflict with russia basically yeah. the problem for austria hungary it's not so easy for them this this idea because a big chunk of of what will later become the Polish Republic, is in Austria-Hungary. So they are a bit uncomfortable with the idea then of an independent Poland right on the border. So there is there are some considerations like this, but they don't really get that far. There is no functioning state of Poland, puppet or otherwise, during the war. It's just an occupied zone. Uh, the Russian part of it, let's say, but
1: that was the plan for Poland once the Central Powers had won. Right, that the Great is puppet for Germany.
0: Well, they do end up eventually creating a Central Powers-controlled Ukraine mm. briefly in 1918, right? But I don't want to. I don't want to take away from a yeah. future question. So yes, right. there were some uh, ideas, and and the plan was discussed for for some kind of Polish state under Central Powers influence, but it never gets done.
1: Now before we move on to the different aspects of the war, I want to talk about Austria-Hungary as well because I, and I will focus a lot on the Central Powers because I think that is vastly overlooked aspect of the Great War and I might want to focus as much on the Allied Powers this time right now, but of course we will come back to them as well with the Entente Powers that were in the cold then. But I want to talk about Austria-Hungary as well mm-hmm. because as as and you might probably wrong again but the, as the way i understood this is that they were poorly equipped with army and poorly trained soldiers at the times which is interesting to me because you know it's considering they joined into war they had such poorly prepared troops
0: yes the austro-hungarian army was the least prepared and least well equipped of the major european powers right excepting the ottomans Let's keep them out of this for now. But in July 1914 or in August 1914, the Ottomans are not involved yet, right? They join later that fall and the Italians are also not involved. So of those initial five powers that are involved, the Austro-Hungarian army is the weakest by some margin. And part of the reason for this is money. They don't have any, right? The, The army's budget has not kept up with that of its rivals for some years. Part of the reason is political infighting in the Austro-Hungarian state. Since 1867, it's actually kind of two states in one, just joined by fiscal policy, by foreign policy, and by the army. Mm. Everything else is kind of separate. And so these difficulties of governance in Austria-Hungary... In addition to the fact that they're not as wealthy, they don't generate as much, the economy is not as large as Germany or France or Britain, Um, they are not able to keep their army as well equipped, or in some cases as well trained, although they have quite a few decently trained troops, it's not like none of them are well trained, but especially they're lacking in equipment, and they're lacking in the most modern kinds of equipment as well. And this plays a big role in the difficulties that the Austro-Hungarian army has, especially at the very start of the war. So they try to knock Serbia out quickly. They expect it's going to be a quick victory, but the Serbians are tough. They're fully mobilized, and they are well equipped with it's as, artillery.
1: It's quite a difficult terrain too in Serbia to from a lot of mountains. There's a lot of- yeah. It's not easy terrain to do blitzkrieg on in the in the. That's in uh, that's right,
0: and the Serbian army is quite experienced. They just fought two wars. They just fought the Balkan wars, right? Mm. So they know what they're doing, and they have French artillery. Not a ton of it, but still, it's good. So the Austrians fail, right, to to mm. knock Serbia out of the war in 1914, and then they also fail catastrophically on the Eastern front in the fall of 1914. And they lose hundreds of thousands of men and their army is much smaller because they, they couldn't afford to draft as many men in peacetime to conscript as many men in peacetime. They want to save money. So the pool of trained men that they have is less, less as a proportion than mm-hmm. the French or the Germans or the, or, or the whoever the French and Germans in this case, let's say. Um, So Austria-Hungary quickly finds itself in a near catastrophic situation where they still have a southern front against the Serbs and they have lost the first campaign in the east against the Russians. And then in early 1915, they make another absolutely catastrophic mistake where they try to launch another offensive against the Russians in the Carpathian Mountains in winter. And it's a a total disaster. It goes nowhere. And hundreds of thousands more Austro-Hungarian soldiers are lost. So within six months of the start of the war, most of the Austro-Hungarian army of July 1914 is gone. They're dead, they're wounded, or they've been taken prisoner by the Russians. And they've been replaced by reserves that have been called up or new men who've been conscripted. But that means the quality of the army, quality of the army suffers even more. Uh, so the beginning of the war is an absolute disaster for Austria-Hungary, but they do survive, right? And then they do go on to continue to be able to fight and fight in some cases effectively, in Italy, for example. Um, but they they take a terrible beating at the start of the war. That's no question about that.
1: So let's talk about. We talked most about the central powers now. Let's talk about the Allies' power as well before we move on to other aspects of the war. How prepared were they for this great war, as it will be called later on? Well, that depends on what we mean by
0: prepared. Mm. I think the French have an extremely effective army and they are aware of some of their weaknesses. So, one of France's weaknesses is population, right? They don't have as many people as Germany by a wide margin. So I think France has about 40, 42 million at the time, and Germany has about 65 million people. That means a lot more soldiers potentially to serve in your army. And France understands this. So they, in the years leading up to the war, they extend the time of mandatory conscription from two years to three years. So this increases the size of their peacetime army. So the French are not outnumbered by the Germans in 1914 in terms of soldiers on the ground in France. Uh, so they, they, they have made some good decisions, the French have, uh, pr- prior to the war breaking out. W- what's difficult uh, from the French point of view at the start of the war is like most of the other powers, they don't know exactly what to expect. They think that they have learned the lessons of the Russo-Japanese War and military tactics and so on. But of course, no one realizes just how effective the defensive is going to be. No one expects trench warfare to begin. So of course, the French, they decide to attack, right? Their plan is plan 17. And the idea is we'll attack Germany along the border between France and Germany, but that attack fails, right? Because they're using tactics that are not effective um, and they suffer a lot of casualties as well. What the French do though, what they are able to do is quickly recover. They're good. I mean, the French are good in 1914. Uh, we, we tend to criticize them a lot for their failure in the offensive of 1914 and how many losses they took and don't they look silly in their red pants and so on and so forth, but they are a good army. They are the second best army in the world uh, after the Germans, right? So they are able to shift their armies around. They're able to make use of their excellent artillery and they're able to win the battle of the Marne and stop the German invasion. Another problem the French have though, that I should point out when I'm talking about artillery they don't have enough heavy artillery. They have expected a war of movement, as as have others. But they don't invest enough, as it turns out, in heavy artillery. So once you have a position war, trench war, you need heavy artillery to blow up trenches, to blow up dugouts. And the light artillery the French have is probably the best in the world, right? The 75 millimeter. But they don't have enough heavy artillery. They have to take it from old fortresses and that kind of thing it's not it's not enough the germans have tons of heavy artillery they have invested in heavy artillery so this creates a problem for the french that they're not able to start solving until 1916
1: so when does Britain join in the war? Do they wait to see how well the French do or do they immediately join as soon as the offensive and defensive begin in the, in <laughs> well, the war? Because in the, not... as you know, in German, World War II, Britain kind of hesitate and there is kind of this proxy war on on the Western Front in the beginning of the war before Britain joined in. Is this the case in World War One as well or do they Im- immediately join in?
0: Well, they don't join in on the same day. Uh, But they join in on August 4th. So they join in a few days later. And the reason is because, you know, Britain does not have a binding alliance with France and Russia. They have friendly agreements, these Mm. ententes cordiales, right, But with France. That's that's why we call the alliance the entente, as you uh, referred to it earlier. And there is some hesitation in Britain. Should we get involved? This is obviously a conflict that started, that's not, directly at the core of British interests in the Balkans. But there are two factors here that that are critical. One is Britain is committed always, usually, to a balance of power in Europe. Hmm. Britain never wants one state to become too powerful. They will always oppose that. They'll always join whatever alliance is against the most powerful European country.
1: I would like to add that I find that kind of ironic, considering they own half the world at the point that they don't want them <laughs> want one power in Europe, but only half the world. That's fine, no problem there.
0: Yeah, yeah, that hey, no question about that. So what happens is they're very nervous about Germany's growing power in the years before the war, especially its navy. This is this is perceived as a big threat to British power and British interests in the British Empire. So. They're not very happy about Germany's policies and what they perceive as the German threat. But that's a different thing from then taking the step of going to war against another great power, especially if you have not been directly attacked. Mm-hmm. What, what pushes Britain over the edge is this idea of the balance of power. They're afraid that Germany will win the war and become too powerful. And therefore it's in British interests to stop that from happening, to join France. And the Germans invade Belgium, which is neutral. and which the neutrality of Belgium is guaranteed by an international treaty from the 1830s that Britain signed. So, of course, sometimes great powers break international treaties, but usually not because the whole international system depends on on, uh, following the treaties that are signed. In this case, it helps to give Britain uh, diplomatic and moral case to go to war, because Germany has very obviously broken the international convention, the international treaty about the neutrality of Belgium. And then the Germans start committing atrocities in Belgium, which reinforces that moral case on the British side. So politically, they can say, well, okay, even if part of our motivation is just geopolitics, we want to stop Germany from becoming too powerful. We also have a moral case that we can put out in public. And say, look, Germany has violated the treaty and it's committing atrocities in Belgium and so on and so forth. So yeah. this is kind of the the situation as to why Britain joins on the 4th of August.
1: Like you said, they were hesitant in joining. Do you think that they kind of in the beginning saw this as a continuation of the franco prussian war in the beginning? Is that what they kind of looked at? at this war in the I think early
0: the, on the the british always have a certain have had a certain distance from conflicts on the continent i mean they do and they don't obviously they're involved because mm-hmm. they're very close but at the same time they have the luxury of the english channel and the royal navy mm-hmm. so they can they have the yeah they have basically they have the luxury of having a bit of a wiggle room let's yeah. say and this is this is the case in uh, 1914 although they make a fairly quick decision to go to war mm. i don't know if i would i don't think they would see it as the continuation of the franco-prussian war just because the political order in europe changed quite a bit when the franco-prussian war breaks out in britain generally there's more sympathy for prussia mm. right because the napoleonic wars were not that long yeah. ago people some older people still remembered them in their own lifetime there's this traditional rivalry between britain and france of course and so even though they fought together in the crimea in 1855 or 53 to 56 let's say there's no real public you know love for france uh, in britain but the situation in 1914 is is different because France is no longer the most powerful state, right? Here we have this idea of the balance of power. It's Germany. Mm. And so Germany seems to be the bigger threat in 1914 for Britain, whereas in 1870, they're not involved in the war, but in general, they don't mind if Prussia takes France down a notch, right? Because France is the most powerful state in 1870 in Europe, at least before they lose that war.
1: Now let's talk about you mentioned the Royal Navy and let's talk about naval power because as at the time the Germany has a bit largest submarine navy at submarines at the time, they had the biggest submarine warfare. So and though they're not very good. But how did they use their submarine in the beginning, beginning and how did the naval warfare go? Let's talk briefly about this before we Sure. Run.
0: Yeah, I mean it's a, it's a kind of underappreciated Uh, part of the war, I think it doesn't get a lot of attention necessarily in the public eye. One of the reasons is that there's not that many huge, massive, dramatic, decisive battles that have an impact on the war. It's mostly a land war. Nonetheless, sea power is still critical. And there are a few different types of naval war that take place. So you have at the beginning of the war, you have some German ships that are abroad mm. and they start to raid. So these warships, are we'll call them surface raiders. So they will attack British or French uh, colonies on the coast. They will attack British or French uh, merchant ships carrying supplies or carrying weapons or what have you. But uh, because the Allies have such naval supremacy – They're able to pretty much either sink or trap these German ships in neutral ports where they can't leave. So then the the Northeast Atlantic becomes the main, well, there is some action in the Mediterranean. There's even some Austro-Hungarian submarines that uh, sink some Allied ships. But basically, it's the Northeastern Atlantic. And there you have the naval blockade working. This is probably the most important aspect of the war is naval blockades. So not naval battles. There are some of those, but naval blockades. And the Allies, of course, blockade Germany. And this has a long-term effect where the German economy struggles more, where the population suffers more, where a few hundred thousand people die of malnutrition and other illnesses that are related to that because they can't get enough food and Germany's short of resources because they cannot import them because the Allies control the seas. This also allows the Allies to capture the German colonies in Africa. Um, The Germans try to use their U-boats to do a similar type of thing. They can't do it with their surface fleet because it's smaller and they don't want to risk it in a kind of suicide mission. Well, they tried at the very end, but the sailors mutiny in 1918. But the German idea is we will use these new weapons, the U-boats. They don't have that many at the beginning of the war, but eventually then they build quite a few more when they realize that they can have an impact. There's some experimentation with the U-boats. They're also a kind of a new weapon. But the Germans try twice to cut off Britain and basically starve Britain out. In 1915, they launched what's called unrestricted submarine warfare. So unrestricted just means you can sink whatever you see if it's if it's an ally, allied vessel or if it's a neutral vessel. Mm. Now, this is a double-edged sword for the Germans because it means, okay, well, Britain's an island. If we sink enough ships bringing supplies to the British, maybe they will run short of food and they will have to surrender or leave the war or agree to a negotiated peace or whatever. The problem is, Oh, and they try this then a second time in 1917. So they started in 1915, they stop it. And then they started again in
1: 1917
0: uh, as well. There's always submarine warfare, but I'm just talking about unrestricted, where they can sink even neutral ships that are going to Britain. And this is a problem for the Germans because that means they can sink American ships that are bringing supplies to Britain because Britain is buying all sorts of weapons and food and other supplies in the United States which is neutral for most of the war until 1917 so germany risks by trying to starve britain germany risks bringing the united states into the war and that's why they stop the unrestricted submarine warfare in 1915 the first time then by the beginning of 1917 germany's situation is so desperate they gamble and they think okay it's worth the risk even if the United States joins the war, it will take them so long to prepare and build up an army that it's worth the risk. We can't hold out very much longer. We know that we, we have to gamble now. And of course, what happens? They start sinking neutral ships again, and the United States declares war on Germany in April 1917.
1: And of course, we'll come back to that later. Yeah,
0: that's one of the major impacts of the naval war. Of course, there are some surface battles. The most famous is the Battle of, well, I guess in Scandinavia, it would be Jutland, I think, Mm. but in, I think anyway, uh, but in English anyway, we call it Jutland. And it's a major battle in 1916. A bunch of big ships shoot at each other. A few of them sink. Uh, The Germans kind of perform a little bit better, but it doesn't change anything strategically. In a sense, because the blockade remains, the German Navy can't operate freely, and the Royal Navy still controls the oceans.
1: Now, before we move into 2015, and we don't focus on the 2015 on the Ottoman side, I think, but I want to talk, first. that we made an episode about this last year in a Christmas special. I think you know what I'm talking about now, the Christmas infamous Christmas truce of 1914. Yes. We, have to, we have to mention it, of course. It would be a crime, not to. <laughs> well, let me... Uh, all right, let me put
0: it this way. I have never worked in detail on the Christmas truce. I've stayed away from the topic a little bit on purpose mm-hmm. because it's so prominent and it's so filled with legends and myths. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, you can't fully escape it. But this is something that often happens with history. And it's true of World War One, like it is of other events in history. What actually happens versus the legend of what happens mm-hmm are two very different things, right? So there's this legend that the men on on both sides, they really didn't want to fight. They didn't believe in the cause. Mm -hmm. And so they were quick to join each other in friendship and they played a football game in no man's land, the British and the Germans, et cetera, et cetera.
1: The way I understood this is that they kind of believed that the war would be over soon anyway, so that it didn't have such an impact on a few days of peace. And I think if I remember correctly, we spoke about this in our Christmas special where they kind of said that, oh, the war is probably over by next year, so where's the harm, you know?
0: Well, yeah, of course, uh, everyone on both sides was hoping that the war would be over as soon as possible. Uh, When it didn't end in 1914, everyone planned to end it in 1915, Mm. if they could, I think the reason why there were no real Christmas truces in 1915, 16, 17 is, first of all, the army discipline forbid it. Mm. It forbid it in 1914 as well, but of course, things were a bit more in flux uh, at the very beginning of the war. But also the sides became more bitter. The war became, um, in people's minds, more, more unforgiving, let's mm. say. Of course, it's not like there was no hatred in 1914. It's not like there was a truce along the whole line mm. in 1914 either. In many places, the shooting continued. People get killed on December 25th, 24th and 25th. Uh, 1914 as well those local truces are the exception they're not the rule Uh, even though they're such a dramatic and interesting and human exception that they take up a big prominent place in kind of the public memory or the legends about the war the reality is more people were fighting on that day or shooting each other than there were uh, talking to each other in no man's land
1: and, and of and course, the football game point. is
0: totally exaggerated, right? Yeah,
1: I think you bring up a point as well when you mentioned about humanity. Because one of the reasons I'm this justice in our episode as well on the Tristan series again, which I'm referring to, is that if it happened again, they would kind of start looking at their enemies as more human and then they would refuse to shoot each other, and that would be a cause a problem because this was what they were supposed to, you know go against each other and if this happened again it would be kind of uh, not not very well good propaganda and the troops would be this begin to be questioned why are we fighting these people they these are people as well which was not the way they were supposed to look at the enemy, that they they were the enemy that was supposed to we were also going to defeat them and kill kill them as fast mm-hmm. as possible possible.
0: I mean, from a purely military point of view. So if you take yeah. this sort of human element out of it from a purely military point of view, yeah, you don't want your soldiers having, <clears throat> having positive connections with the enemy. Um, one thing I think that uh, sometimes gets a bit overlooked in the discussion about Christmas truces is that they were far more common in the East mm. between the Russians, Germans, and Austro-Hungarians. They were more widespread. It's not like everyone was celebrating together, but but they were larger and and more common, especially then in 1917, because, of mm-hmm. course, the war starts to break up in the East, right, after the Russian Revolution. So, so, yeah, that I find interesting, especially because in World War II, the fighting in the East is far more horrific oh, yeah. and oh, far yeah. more inhuman, and their intentions towards each other are far less human, let's say. Um, Mm -hmm. But in the first war, it was more flexible in some aspects than in the West.
1: And that's, we have to move on, of course, because uh, we have been stuck in 1914 for time and talk about a lot of preparation for the war and the beginning of the war. We have to talk about 2015 as well. And we mentioned the Ottomans. When... What brings, because they are hesitant in, 1915, communi- I think. You 19, mean, right? Yeah, 1915, yeah. yeah. And, uh, they are kind of hesitant in joining you first. And we talked about this in the previous episodes, how it made sense that they wanted to join the central powers because the allied powers just wanted to carve up their territory in Egypt. And, uh, well, what makes them eventually join the war against both Russia and, and we, of course, have to mention the Gallipoli campaign, which was an allied disaster.
0: Yeah, I mean, the Ottomans are in a tricky situation, right? They're much weaker than the other powers. But they've also been receiving a lot of assistance from Germany before Mm. the war. Germany became the kind of primary European ally of the Ottoman Empire in the couple of decades leading up to the First World War. Before that, earlier in the 19th century, it had been Britain. But after the Crimean War, that's a bit less the case. And then the Ottomans feel like, well, uh, we're vulnerable against Russia. And Russia defeats them, right? In the, in the Russo-Turkish War of 1877 78, Russia and Romania together defeat the Ottomans. And so when this new war breaks out, the Ottomans think, well, look, okay, we have a choice here our ally germany who has invested in the ottoman empire they've built railways there they have helped modernize to some extent and equip the army and the navy what do we do right they they are now involved in, a, in an existential war a great power war and russia is on the other side and russia is the main threat to the ottoman empire because they want territory in the caucasus they want territory uh, well, they want to control the straits, right? The and they want to Constantinople. Exactly, because this is a traditional Russian strategic goal in the region to get access to the Mediterranean. And for cultural reasons, right? Orthodox Christianity yeah. comes from uh, or is based in Constantinople at the time for most of its history. Um, so the Ottomans feel like, well, it's in our interest then to join the war on the German side to. Prevent a Russian victory, because if Russia wins, it's big, big trouble for the Ottomans yeah. in the future. um So that's kind of that's uh, more or less the considerations that go in to the Ottoman Empire joining in
1: What What is worth mentioning as well? You mentioned that Britain and Ottomans were allied, and we do see that the Sultan meets Queen Victoria at some point as well. But the at the time before 1914, the British do as well have a naval ship, naval ship built for the Ottomans, which they eventually end up taking yeah. it itself. But of course, since the Ottomans joined the Central Powers, that kind of got out of the question. To give an the ship.
0: well, I mean, uh, it makes sense. The German ship build, uh, British uh, shipbuilding companies can make money in peacetime building ships for other powers, so that's not uh, completely uncommon. Um, what I wanted to mention was it's it's kind of ironic because the british their reason for joining the Crimean War mm-hmm. in the eighteen fifties was to protect the Ottoman Empire yeah. against the Russians, and now of course it's Germany who is seen as the protector of the Ottoman Empire against mm-hmm. the Russians, and the British eventually of course attacked the Ottoman Empire in Mesopotamia in Palestine and and the Sinai, and then, of course, briefly, briefly, ten months or whatever, in Gallipoli, yeah.
1: which is an um, Allied disaster. And Churchill, of course, is it is a disaster.
0: Uh, it is a disaster. First, they wanted to send warships through the straits. That fails, right? They hit mines and mm. sink, and then they stop. And there's a debate: well, if they had kept pushing, maybe they would have succeeded with the the warships, and they would have knocked the Ottoman Empire out of the war already in 1915, which would have changed a lot uh, in the course of the war, not everything, but it would have been a huge, huge Allied victory. Uh, But that naval plan fails. So then they land troops. And that eventually also fails, because they're just not able to keep them, uh, keep them properly in action and push the turks off of the off of that difficult terrain one thing that i always try to point out when it comes to gallipoli on this topic again of you know legends coming after the war that are not exactly how things you know were obviously the most famous part of the battle from the allied perspective in in the popular history let's say is the the anzacs right? The yeah. Australians, New Zealanders, to them, this is such a symbolically important battle in their history that there are movies about it and special ceremonies for it and all this kind of stuff, national holidays uh, to commemorate it. But in fact, there were more British troops that participated in Gallipoli than there were Australian and New Zealanders. Mm-hmm. And there were more French troops at Gallipoli than there were Australians and New Zealanders, so of course it's not wrong that for Australians and New Zealanders that battle had a lot of um, a lot of symbolic meaning. But I think if we look back on the whole, it's important that we remember that the Allied force was much much larger, and that the French had a
1: very large contingent of troops as well. And um, I want to talk about naval air air superiority because planes were quite new, uh, not to, but air warfare mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. planes were quite new to use in warfare at the time and it was mainly used for bombing, it wasn't until a little bit later that there, I don't remember his name but it was a soldier pilot who put a machine gun in on his plane, at, uh, on the wing of the plane I think and that's how they started using machine guns on planes But it, but planes were mainly used for bombing and how effective they were they? In the with the creation of RAF and the German, I don't remember well, the name of the German air air. In, interestingly, but, you know,
0: yeah, at first there was the Royal Flying Corps, which then eventually becomes the the Royal Air Force uh, on hmm. the British British side. But air warfare changes a lot over the course of the war. Um. Initially, the main use of airplanes so fixed structure airplanes so not zeppelin balloons right but actual yeah. airplanes the way we think of them the main use at first is reconnaissance yeah taking pictures so you can see where the enemy trench is maybe you can identify where some artillery emplacements are on those pictures and then your artillery can bombard those positions mm. so that's kind of the the first uses as an observer then Those observing planes, they they sort of see each other. And uh, so pilots start bringing pistols or rifles or eventually machine guns. But a major change, and this is what you referred to, I think, a major change comes when an engineer on the German side, he's Dutch, actually, Fokker is his name. He invents a system where you can mount a machine gun behind the propeller. Yeah. And it will be timed through a little mechanical, there's like a little lever that the propeller moves each time it rotates. And that controls when the bullets are fired. So it's timed that the bullets will fire in between the propeller blades as the propeller is rotating. Otherwise, if it's not coordinated, your own bullets will just chew off your propeller blades and you're going to crash, right?
1: Yeah.
0: So uh, that changes things. The Germans have that first. The Allies eventually copy it. And there is this back and forth, where then each side will add some kind of technology, and the other will try to get a get one and copy it. Or one side will come out with a new model of airplane that's a bit better. Then they have the advantage for a few months until the other side comes out with a an improved airplane, and and back and forth like that.
1: How how safe was it and how reliable were the (laughs) airplanes? They were not particularly (laughs) safe. They don't have parachutes.
0: especially most of the models it's uh, it's a frame with fabric stretched over it at first anyway so uh if you crash you know it's not easy to make a crash landing uh, of course it happens but death rates among pilots especially during certain phases of the war are very very high so it's not it's not a very safe uh, occupation let's say yeah. to have uh, but i want to talk about the bombing a little bit yeah at at first the planes are, the bombing is not very effective. They have very, very small bombs. The 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 air crew have to like pick them up by hand, hold them out over the side and drop mm. them. So it's not that effective at first, but of course they developed this. And the at first, the most effective way to drop bombs is with the airships, the Zeppelins, because they're much bigger, they can hold more bombs. And the Germans do that. They go over to the UK and they drop bombs on various towns there but even then it's not enough to make a big strategic difference aerial bombing is not is not uh, advanced enough the the air the technology is just not advanced enough for it to have a huge impact by the end of the war both sides have developed heavier bombers with multiple engines that can go longer distances and then they do bomb towns but it's something that, because of the state of the technology at the time, doesn't have a huge
1: impact. Right. Something that we, I think is uh, as well with our Luft is the German use of Zeppelin. So they, they seem to be quite popular among German use of air warfare. So, and they do bomb, I believe, the British Isles as well with them. So how Several times, yeah. How effective were they compared to the early planes of the war? Well, the advantage is they have a long range. They can go
0: far. Uh, They're also bigger, so they can carry more bombs. The problem is they are also not not that effective in the end. They can't carry enough bombs to really do significant damage to affect the war effort of the enemy. And they're quite vulnerable also. They're filled with gases that can catch on fire. So they're not that hard to shoot down if you can if you can find them and they're slow. So they have, they have some serious limitations and that's why they're used in the war, but they don't play a, a decisive mm. role in any way.
1: Mm. So we had to move on again and we had to go to 1916 where you get the famous battle of Verdun, of course. So how, how significant was this battle for World War One?
0: Verdun is a very important battle for a couple of reasons. One is it's the, the only time on such a scale between october 1914 and march 1918 it's the it's the by far the largest german offensive on the western front so now we have a change of out of the usual let's say pattern of the germans defending the allies attacking where the germans are trying to attack but even they the single most powerful army fail at that, Mm. right? They're not able to do what they want to do, which as it turns out is they want to try to win a battle of attrition against the French, but they're not able to do it. And the French army is able to hold. And that is important for the course of the war, because here you have the most important allied army, the French one, and the most important, Central Powers Army, the German one, fighting a massive battle against each other and the French hold, even though they are on the balance a a weaker power than Germany a little bit. So this is a sign for Germany that it's not able to militarily defeat the Western allies for the foreseeable future, unless something changes. And of course, that will change in 1917 when, when Russia drops out, of the war, and that's why the Germans attack in 1918 in the West because they can. But in 1916, nobody knows that's going to happen. It looks really bad for the Germans at that moment because they have tried to knock out the main Allied army and they can't do it. And for France, they suffered so many losses in 1914 and 15, catastrophic, terrible losses, more than um, most other powers proportionately. And yet Verdun is a sign that they are still able to function, still able to fight effectively, and still able to take losses in a major battle. So Verdun is kind of a sign that that the Allies are going to hold in spite of everything, that France is going to hold in spite of everything, and that Germany is not strong enough to win in the West on its Mm. own, uh, as long as Russia is still in the war.
1: Mm. And something I mean, that we have, um, we have to talk about this as well before we move on to night seventeen, is the invention of the tanks and in the, the famous Mark Five tanks, and you can see it have a kind of cameo in all quite of the Western Front. But how they weren't very effective in the beginning; and it was it sounded really torturous to be inside of one <laughs> yes, early of. And the early tanks. But what what kept them going? Why when, why didn't they realize that we can develop this? And why didn't they just give up tanks warfare for which it was such ineffective in the beginning? You think that they kind of, well, this isn't going to work. It's not very yeah. effective. But we're going to keep going with it.
0: I mean, both the French and the British developed tanks, different kinds of tanks. Mm-hmm. Uh, the British one is, of course, maybe more famous internationally mm-hmm. because it was the first one used in combat in September, 1916 in a part of the battle of the Somme called uh, the battle of Flair uh, where Canadian troops played a prominent role. But anyway, um, you're right. The, the Mark I tanks are the first kind with a little trailer with the wheels at the back yeah. that you sometimes see. And they don't, they don't bring much, right? They, they scare the heck out of a bunch of Germans who run away but it's not enough. There are not enough of them. They're not reliable. They're too slow. It's very difficult to use them in proper coordination with
1: the infantry. But it's interesting the, how they kept pushing on with the times, even the, yeah. you know, like you said, how ineffective they were. And I think the reason is it's a new technology. And
0: the British and French believe that there's so much potential in this technology that it's going to be effective if we can make improvements to the machines and if we can make improvements to how we use the machines. Those are two different things, right? So not only do they have to have more reliable tanks, they also have to be able to use those tanks in an effective way. And eventually they experiment, the British do more and more throughout 1917, And in spring 1917, they have another disappointing performance of the tanks at the Battle of Arras. But then, and they can't really use the tanks that much at Passchendaele in 1917 because the conditions are too too wet. But at the Battle of Cambrai in November, December 1917, then we see several hundred tanks being a part of this offensive and much, much better coordination between the tanks and the infantry it still has some difficulties because it's a difficult thing to do but this combined arms warfare where you have infantry you have tanks you have artillery and then you have aircraft mostly as observers but but still all working in a coordinated plan together that is something that's going to end up opening up the western front from the allied point of view in 1918. And it's something that begins to take shape. You can already see it happening at Cambrai in, in November 17. So the tanks don't work too well at first. But the, the, the potential is understood or is seen or it's like partially understood. And it takes time to work towards that. Right. And this is true in, in war, I think, in all time periods. Look at the, the current war in Ukraine the use of drones has started to change. Now they have drones doing different things, dropping bombs or drones with a little weapon on them to shoot at other drones. And all, all kinds of different things are, are being modified and tested uh, as the war goes. And it was no different with tanks.
1: Right. So let's move on to 1917 now. And of course, don't order to talk about America, Actually, I want to, before we move on to the Russian Revolution, which we are going to talk about in a second, I want to talk about America before, before, and I want to talk about Woodrow Wilson a little bit, because he comes up with the term it's national self-determination. And what is national self-determination? And why was it became, became quite popular on the German side as well? And, and it caught on. So what made national self-determination so effective? And what, what, what was the point of national self-determination? Well,
0: I think uh, the intention on Wilson's part was to create a concept that would help Europe resolve some of its problems. Mm. He and many people saw the cause of the war and the cause of a lot of war in oppression and empire. Mm. Now, of course, the US also had an empire Right with the Philippines, yeah. with Guam, and they occupied uh, some Caribbean islands like Haiti and Cuba at different times.
1: In the they... panama sort of the Point. Of uh
0: 1914, yeah. yeah. Um of course they also conquered much of the United States mm. from Mexico and from the indigenous peoples, but still they didn't see themselves that way necessarily.
1: Of they course looked
0: they did They looked at the old empires in Europe and that there were different different national groups uh, that were being oppressed. And this is part of the evil of empire. And Mm. that can be hopefully resolved if every national group just has their own state, that would be what a nice world it would be, Mm. right? You wouldn't have these autocratic empires like Germany, Russia, and Austria, Hungary anymore, or at least autocratic in the view of Wilson and, and and people who thought uh, like him. The problem is On the one hand, self-determination theoretically means one state for one group of people, but that doesn't correspond to reality. And that's a big problem. So populations are mixed in many parts of Europe. Identities are mixed for centuries and centuries. People have not been organized based on national group. There was no such thing as the idea of a national group for most of European history. It only comes later, especially in the 19th century. So They don't settle in nice little borders. All the Poles live in this border. All the Germans live in this Mm -hmm. border. All the whoever, Romanians, Hungarians live in that. They're mixed because for centuries, that's how it worked. And that's how humans settle and are and move over history. Mm -hmm. So the idea of uh, self-determination then becomes appealing to everyone who wants to make it what's convenient to them. You're right. So for the Italians, it's super convenient. Self-determination means we should also own Italian historical lands, which are now a part of Austria-Hungary, right? Doesn't matter if there are a lot of German speakers or a lot of Slovene speakers in those areas. Our self-determination as Italy means that historically they are ours and we should have that. Whereas the Austrians then, well, let's say the Austrians after when the wars ended, or ending, and you have the Republic of Austria, they say, well, okay, but self-determination means we should be with other German speakers.
1: Yeah.
0: So Italy should not get South Tyrol because most people there speak German. Czechoslovakia should not have its border regions with Austria because that's a place where most people speak German. And even the Austrians say, we want to join with Germany. Because we Mm. should be one state. That's self-determination, right? And the Germans then, at the end of the war, they also say, well, if the new peace is going to be based on self-determination, we can't let Poland have these territories in the East because we say they are German. And look, there are some Mm. German speakers who live there. Even in some little spots, they're the majority. So self-determination is a kind of utopian idea in a way that is impossible to achieve. Mm. And this is one of the reasons why, one of the reasons why so many are unhappy with the peace settlement, because everyone puts so much hope in self-determination, but it's, it's not a realistic concept. Mm. And of course, it's also not a fairly applied concept, So Hungary, for example, after the peace settlement, they're angry because they say, hey, look at all these Hungarians who are now stuck in Czechoslovakia, stuck in Romania, stuck in Yugoslavia. It's not fair. We want self-determination. But Hungary was on the losing side. So the idea was not applied the same. Where there's a mixed region where you can't really decide, um, the peace conference gives that region, generally speaking, to states that were not a part of the central powers directly. Hmm. So Austria, Hungary, and Germany kind of lose out in the way that self-determination is interpreted. Um, Italy a little bit as well, because they don't get as much as they want. And they're also very upset afterwards.
1: Italy seems to get support the Allied powers as well, that that they claim to these areas, historical areas, as you mentioned.
0: Yeah, well, Italy is a is a complicated case because, of course, initially they're allied to Germany and Austria-Hungary,
1: mm. but
0: they don't join them when the war begins. And then at the peace conference, they have some serious demands for territory mm. uh, in the former territory of Austria-Hungary, but that goes against other allied interests mm. because now the Allies, they create Yugoslavia. Well, what will become Yugoslavia At the time, it's called the Kingdom of Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes. And Yugoslavia's claims overlap with Italy's claims. So what do you do? And the populations are mixed. There are some Italians there. There are some Slovenes there. There are some Croats there in these border area. And the Allies decide, well, we're going to give some to Italy and some to Yugoslavia. Because they want Yugoslavia to be as powerful as possible so that it will be a future ally of France and Britain. This makes Italy extremely angry because they say, we fought, we died on the Allied side, and now we're not getting everything that we want, right? So Italy ends up then kind of being opposed to its former allies after the war. And it's one of the, one of the factors that brings fascism to Italy as well. So it leaves us a strange uh, a strange and complicated case. And all this comes from the new prominence of Wilson and the US entering the war in 1917 and then his 14 points in January 1918. To bring it back to your question after yeah. all
1: that. And we had to draw thought about, of course, a significant factor in and going back to the Eastern Front. We haven't been there in a while and thought about because it's kind of a disaster that Germany is prominent on Russia, but what well, something that happens is the Russian Revolution, of course. But and I'd rather really simplify this because it's such a big factor of history that it needs its own episode eventually. Because there is two kind of revolutions in you know the February Revolution yeah. with Jarensky, and then you got of course the Bolsheviks Strand in July, but they fail, and then you got the October Revolution. And the Tsar yeah. abdicates in of course I'm simplifying this really, really yeah, 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 well, yeah. but not, not, not simplifying here, but the, the Tsar abdicated in February. The Kerensky takes, takes office and it become a massive part of the Russian offensive. In you got the infamous Kerensky offensive, yeah, which was, if I remember, remember correctly, a disaster. And then you got the Bolshevik revolution where Russia <laughs> takes out, which happened in November, according to the Russian yeah, calendar, the calendar they say October yeah. Revolution, of course. But how does this impact Germany? The the Russian Revolution and the the peace treaty with Lenin.
0: Well, it's a huge it's a huge change in the war. It's a seismic change in the war, because the Russian army is massive, and it's much better equipped in 1916-17 than it is in 1914-15. So, it represents a huge force. But as you summarized, right, there are these two revolutions: mm-hmm. first, the Tsar. Uh, abdicates a provisional Republican government takes over and Kerensky is the most famous figure in, in that whole thing. And they try to continue the war. They basically say, well, Russia's interests are still in continuing this war to a victorious conclusion. We have agreements with our allies and so on. But the state is now kind of too vulnerable
1: so something and, that we have. To, sorry for interrupting you, again. Yeah. Something we have to talk about the is that the army, Russian army, after the February, February, is just really messy and people in in discipline after the because they don't know what to do when they drop the leader. It starts star to get messy. On them, yeah, and they the soldiers kind of start to organize
0: themselves. Uh, yeah, it holds the line. Mm-hmm. So it's not like it. It it's not like it completely disappears, but it's not the same. Uh, It's not the same force. It's not as reliable as it was before. Of course, there is this so-called Kerensky offensive in the summer of 1917. Russian armies do attack. They have some success at first, but the army is not able to continue. Um, The discipline is no longer there. The morale is no longer there. Things at home are drawing the soldiers' attention back. Some of them desert to go back home because in their village now land is being redistributed and they want land. They're peasants. This is important to them, right? They're peasant farmers. So uh, summer 1917 is really the last gasp of the Russian army as a, a potential, you know, difference maker. And it shows that it's not anymore, that it's, it's, it's a, it's, it's become too, too weak and too vulnerable, even though it's much better equipped than it ever was before.
1: I believe, if I remember correctly, Trotsky, in his work on the history of the Russian Revolution, really goes hard against. He's not really a fan, if I remember correctly, of Kerensky.
0: No kidding, <laughs> <laughs> that's definitely true. Trotsky is not a fan of the you know the bourgeois uh, government of of a Republican Russia at that time so then of course the bolsheviks they launch essentially a a violent coup and and take power in in october then Mm -hmm. slash november depending which calendar you're you're using um and that's the end for russia right in the war in the first world war and then this changes the game completely for germany or so they hope because this is the break they've been waiting for right this now they can transfer troops to the west it takes some time because the bolsheviks draw out the negotiations they delay and eventually the germans have to march farther into russia to force the bolsheviks to accept a peace treaty but it does work and the russians are able uh, sorry the germans are then able to bring fresh troops west they still keep a lot of men in the east to occupy all the areas that they took from russia uh, including ukraine right? And they created a... Imagine
1: the puppet state. Yeah, They
0: they created a... It wasn't 100% a puppet state, but under Central Power's control and Mm. occupied militarily as well uh, at some point. But anyway, the point is the Germans bring troops to the West and launch a desperate final offensive. They know that they're losing. Mm. They know they're desperate. They have to win uh, before their resources run out and the American army can be built up. Um, and of course, they fail at that, right? They gain a bunch of territory, but they don't break the allied armies. It creates a crisis. It's, it's a real bad situation for the allies. But uh, the Germans fail. And their morale and their discipline begins to break. And their army will start to weaken, people will start to desert from the German army in, then in the fall of 1918,
1: something we have to talk about, of course, is American entry into the war and that the infamous Zimmerman telegram, which was sent yeah. to Mexico to try to hope and hope that Mexico would attack because they were fr- they were friendly to Germany, which is kind of makes sense, you know, with like you said with the attack on the war with U.S. and Mexico, but it makes sense that they, were, but, they but the the Zimmerman. How did they find out about the Zimmerman telegram? Well,
0: because the British found it, mm. so the British are uh, monitoring German communication with their embassies, right? Because it's going across uh, um, undersea cables, and so the British are able to are able to uh, also recognize that this that uh, this telegram has been sent. But the the, the aspect of this whole Zimmer, Zimmerman issue that I find the most interesting is why the Germans admitted that it was real.
1: Mm.
0: Because, you know, theoretically, they could have tried to deny more uh, plausible deniability, let's mm. say. But they admitted that it was real. And this, of course, is a diplomatic disaster for the Germans. And it, uh, it of course, contributes to the anti-German feelings
1: in the U.S. Mm. And how quickly does it does this And I want before I talk about the entry, I want to ask because is this a myth or is it true that Britain kind of attacked American vessels, vessels, well, to try to uh, get America into in, the world, or is, is that more a myth? No, the, the
0: British trips, uh British, British ships, did not attack American vessels uh, to try to get them into the war. What they did do, which had the opposite effect, which really made the Americans angry was sometimes they stopped and checked American cargo ships, especially carrying mail and posts because they wanted to make sure that the Germans were not trying to do something on those neutral American ships or send certain things, ship uh, items that were forbidden, get around this blockade, so sometimes the British did check some American ships, and this created a lot of tension between Britain and the United States uh, before the United States entered the war uh, but they didn't they didn't attack uh, american ships No, that that would be crazy
1: mm. so they do allege General general how significant is that this is of course massive significant for the change of the outcome of the war but were, were the Germans still losing at this point in 1917 when the Germans entered and couldn't they have lost without American entry?
0: Oh, that's a good question. I I would say, yes, the Germans could have lost without American entry. And the reason I say that is because there's no guarantee that the Russian revolution is the second Russian revolution is going to happen. So if we're looking at counterfactuals, then we have okay. to consider several different options, not just one. So it is possible that the U.S. doesn't enter, but Russia doesn't drop out. Okay. And if that's the case, Germany cannot win. In addition, if you look at how 1918 plays out, the Americans only really start seriously fighting with, with, with a lot of troops participating in the fighting in about September, 1918. So by that time, Germany is already losing badly. And the tide turns on the battlefield in the West in July and early August, when the French launch a massive counterattack, and then the British on August 8th launch a massive counterattack. Those two counterattacks are working. The Germans are losing, they're retreating. Before the big American battles begin, the big American involvement begins. Now, of course, it is very useful to have an extra 2 million US troops uh, in Europe. This is like, this helps the Allies win and helps them maybe win a bit faster. But the main US contribution is probably money, supplies, and ammunition and a boost to morale because the Germans know the Americans are there and going to get stronger, and the Allies also know it. So if the war had continued into 1919, the U.S. would have played a, a much more decisive role on the battlefield.
1: Yeah. This is a stupid question, but there has been no chance that the U.S. might have joined the German side. in this, There is no way they would have joined. I don't joined. think
0: so. I don't think so. It's just not in their interest, really. The one exception would have been if the British... Had uh, adopted a crazy policy of being aggressive towards American shipping, because we know that this is something that provokes the US into military action against Germany. And it provoked the US into military action against Britain back in 1812. So that is one possible way, but it's so unlikely. uh, That's why it didn't happen, basically.
1: There's, before we go to the Treaty of Versailles, there's something I want to mention as well. And I feel like it's just worth mentioning in passing now, is that the Ottoman, that the Germans, as well, we've talked about the Ottoman Jalipoli campaign, but the Ottoman Sultan that met fifth, I believe at the time. Not the sixth one comes after World War yeah. Two, I believe. But, uh, he, this, the German, Wilhelm II, he to- tried to, Speech to the Sultan and they do launch a jihad against the allied power, but it of course fails because, they, as we talked about in the UG with Eugene Rogan on the on yeah. history of the Arabs, they, they are just humans and they, the, the, the jihad kind of became irrelevant in, in the modern era.
0: At this time, yeah, the jihad that is called by the Sultan, who's also the caliph hmm. of the Muslim world at this time right? It doesn't work. I mean, the idea is the French and British have so many Muslim uh, subjects living in their empires, living in their colonies, that maybe if they call out jihad, and there are many Muslims in the Russian empire as well, can't forget about them, the Tatars and Bashkirs and Muslim peoples there, or Caucasian peoples in the Russian empire as well, who are Muslim. So the Germans feel like maybe this will cause some difficulties for the allies, because maybe there will be some religious Muslim uprisings against them in their empires, but it doesn't work. It is true. I have read some interesting collections of letters, for example, from British Muslim Indian soldiers serving in the Middle East, fighting the Turks who say, you know, ah, isn't it a shame that we're fighting fellow Muslims, but it doesn't mean that they're going to go on a jihad against the British.
1: There were some worrying in the Allied powers that this could have a massive effect, but of course, it doesn't. But there is some worrying. Yes, yeah. the, they always
0: worry that their colonial subjects will rise up against them. This is a constant worry if you have an um, if you have an empire, mm. and yes, uh, there is some concern, but it doesn't it doesn't amount to anything significant.
1: There is one person I haven't mentioned so far, and it's uh, simply because we haven't had time to discuss every detail. I wish that we could, but we all have stuff to do, unfortunately. But there's one general, Erich Ludendorff, who is yeah. kind of significant to the loss of German because he has a tremendous amount of pressure. He's one of the foremost generals in the war of Kaiser Wilhelm II, and he suddenly collapses because he can't take it anymore. There has been terrorists, I believe. David Stevenson is about to is that if he hadn't collapsed, it could have gone on for a little longer, but it does collapse eventually, and this is a significant factor to the loss of Germany and the Treaty of Versailles.
0: I mean, I think um, I would look at it a, a little bit the other way around So there's, you could you could say you could look at it and say, okay, well, a very important general, you know, has this kind of breakdown in in the fall, and that accelerates the German defeat or you could say that the Germans are already being defeated and that accelerates the personal breakdown of the general Hmm. and I think that's the more the Hmm. side that I I would take is that he realizes that the war is lost and that contributes to the pressure on him and that contributes to his breakdown Uh, and then of course he tells the government that the war's lost and they should seek an armistice now
1: and not later before things get worse. And so before again there's some 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 things that we've haven't discussed that's kind of important as well. Just we mentioned this in the past before we come to Versailles. I want to go back a little bit because gas is used not significantly. And I want to talk about this a little bit before we go again, before we go to the Versailles, which because mm-hmm. it's used by both Allied and flamethrowers as well. It's a new invention in The war in the first world war. So let's talk about the gas and use of flamethrowers in the war. Yeah,
0: the well, the Germans have the most advanced chemical industry in the world at this time, right? They're the world leaders in chemical production. So it's not an accident that they are the first to invent both of those weapons. Um, They first used the flamethrowers in 1915, but they don't have, it's not like a war winning weapon. Mm. It's useful in some situations like at Verdun or whatever, where there's like forts and you have to get at enemies, get at enemies that are in these uh, entrenched and uh, covered positions or fortified and right. covered positions. You, Gas, has, you is, are
1: quite vulnerable too, aren't you? When you go out yeah. there in no man's land, when you, you, you don't have you're just on your journey, I just presume, and has got heavy equipment, so you are quite vulnerable. When you go while they are dangerous, you do are quite vulnerable still to open fire. In in no man's land, you're very vulnerable to things like
0: shrapnel mm. from artillery, right? That's bursting yeah. above you. When the flamethrower is most effective is when you have defenders that are in some kind of concrete bunker or fort mm. because it's a closed space. Yeah. So the flames can be more effective in a closed space and the defenders don't have as much area to get away, right? So if it's pouring rain and windy and you're trying to use a flamethrower in the middle of no man's land, it's not as effective, but you're also more vulnerable as the, mm. as the user of the flamethrower. Yeah. Whereas in a in a situation like okay you're in the tunnels of Fort uh, Vaux or Douaumont in in Verdun, then it's a more effective weapon, but it doesn't change the overall outcome of the war. The most important weapon remains artillery, and this is true for gas as well. Um, they test it; the Germans do first on the Russian on the Russians on the Eastern Front, then they use it for the first time on the Western Front. At the Second Battle of Ypres in April uh, 1915. And it's a huge shock. The Allies are not expecting it, they're not prepared for it. And it hits first an Algerian division and a Canadian division next to it. And they are, of course, driven back because they have no defense mm. against this and they don't expect it. The Canadians are able to recover, the Algerians, uh, not so much. Unfortunately, they were hit even worse. But the Canadians are able to recover and and prevent a breakthrough, but and my great great uncle was killed in that action as well. Um, but gas, even though then later there are different kinds of gas invented. That was chlorine uh, used at Second
1: now that, That's and, what caused Hitler to come to the hospital too, wasn't it? I don't know if it was
0: chlorine, but it was some sort of poison gas. I don't remember. Later, they invent other kinds like phosgene and the infamous mustard gas. And it's usually the Germans inventing these kinds first and then the allies copying after because the Germans had, you know, like I say, they were more advanced for, for chemistry, in chemistry. Um, it's, gas is, is not effective at killing people, as strange as that sounds to us when we imagine it. But once gas masks come in, it's not it very be effective later. at killing people. Yeah, yeah, later kinds, like with nerve gases and stuff, that's a, a whole different ballgame. But that World War I example, World War I gas is not effective at killing people. It can be effective at really making soldiers' jobs harder and more unpleasant. Mm. So, for example, if you are trying to defend yourself in a trench, or if you are part of an artillery crew and you're working the guns and there's gas shells blowing up around you, you have to put your gas mask on. It's hot. It's uncomfortable. You can't see well, you can't hear well. And of course you're stressed because you know, if there's a problem with your gas mask, you're going to inhale gas and be wounded or potentially rarely, but, but you, you might also die. And so gas is kind of like a suppressor weapon in a way you can really hinder the effectiveness of the other guy fighting, even if you can't kill him very often with gas, you can really uh, make him have difficulties doing his job as a soldier. And that's essentially the purpose for poison gas in the First World War, the main purpose.
1: And again, now we said that get to Versailles in a second, but what, what, we, what was the number of casualties about civilian? The, was, of course, civilianism is harder to define, but what was the t- casualties on the fronts of World War I?
0: Overall, I mean, of course, we can't know exactly because the scale is too mm-hmm. vast, um, but they estimate, historians estimate something like around 9 to 10 million soldiers were killed mm-hmm. and probably up to about 10 million civilians died as a result of the war. Some of them. And there was a pandemic as well. The Spanish flu. Yes, was there's the helping. Spanish flu. Was also, not yeah. yeah. But um, in terms of civilian deaths, I think we, we underestimate that sometimes. I think the one people are most aware of is probably the Armenian genocide in the Ottoman Empire, yeah. which is anywhere between 800,000 and 1.5 million, uh, if I remember right about the estimates. But we have to also remember that. In the Central Powers, people are dying from malnutrition and diseases related to malnutrition, hundreds of thousands of them. And in the areas of the Russian Empire that are occupied by the Central Powers, there's also a massive food shortage. So people in former Russian Poland start dying from malnutrition and related diseases while they're under occupation. The Austro-Hungarians kill several tens of thousands of Serbian civilians. And Ukrainian civilians as well, whom they suspected of being traitors and cooperating with the Russians. So typhus, there's a huge typhus outbreak as well in Eastern Europe in 1917, 18 and beyond that kills hundreds of thousands. And there's a huge famine in the former Ottoman Empire in or the Ottoman Empire starting in 1918, where in Lebanon, for example, many, many people starved to death. So all these things together, and of course, then there are all the African porters, because of course, there's a whole campaign in Africa that we, haven't, mm. uh, that we won't have time to get to probably today. Yeah. But there are very few soldiers, but there are so many hundreds of thousands of African porters who are carrying all the supplies mm. for the different small armies moving around. And they are dying of exhaustion, of disease. And we don't know how many there were of them because they didn't keep proper records, the colonial powers. So this is how we get these these large figures of civilian dead,
1: even though it's
0: not as much as the second world war, of course.
1: And something we have to mention as well is and we don't have time to go through all of them, but Wilson's 14 points is of course yeah. famous in the First World War.
0: Well I think the one that the famous one is about self-determination. Mm. Right. Um there are others, but some of them sort of fit into that. No these, territorial gain, which is the right. other, which British and Nord kind of. No secret, you know, no secret deals between countries yeah. and all that kind of uh stuff. He he gets very specific sometimes where says Poland should have access to the sea and that kind of stuff. So it's a mixed bag. Uh they have a huge impact on um people's hopes Hmm. for the war. Everybody in the allied countries thinks, ah, yes, you know, he's going to come and we're going to have peace based on some combination of these points. But then in the central powers, people are also thinking the same thing because they see it as something that will benefit them and protect them from the allies if they lose the war. And then in the end, most are partly disappointed Hmm. by it. And the peace treaty, because this, leads us nicely into the peace treaty. The series of peace treaties is not only one, right? There's a, what you could call a Versailles system. So there's the treaty of Versailles with Germany. There's the treaty of Saint-Germain with the Republic of Austria. There's the treaty of Trianon with Hungary. There's the treaty of Neuilly with Bulgaria. Mm. And then at first there's the treaty of Sèvres with uh, the Ottomans, Mm. but that eventually, because of the war that happens there, And then we get the Republic of Turkey. Eventually, that becomes the Treaty of Lausanne in 1923. So there's a whole system of treaties. And essentially, um, it's a no-win situation. If you're trying to remake the European order, there's going to be people unhappy everywhere. And that's how
1: it turned out. And of course, something that we have to mention as well is that while the Treaty of Versailles was a final peace, there was the Allied powers agreed to not, not make a separate... And that's one one of the reasons why the war went on so long is that they agreed no separate peace with Germany or no separate peace outside of the Allied agreement, right? So that's one of the reasons why the war went on for as long as it did because they didn't have separate peace and not... And, and which of course Russia eventually did because of the revolution yeah. but uh, yeah. you know, for the other allied powers there were no separate deals
0: right which makes sense if you're the allies mm. because you don't want the other guy jump and ship mm. and the central powers had the same concept right Germany uh, reacted very badly when they found out that Austria-Hungary was testing the waters a little bit about maybe there could be some peace talks mm. And Germany became afraid that Austria was looking for a separate peace, and threatened the Austrians and and increased their control or let's say their their influence over Austrian decision making uh, at that point in 1916. So neither side was willing to have a separate peace until you know dramatic events occur, like Russian Revolution, or eventually then the bulgarians have to sign a peace because they're about to be completely occupied in september 1918 so
1: yeah and of course the kaiser eventually abdicated to get the weimar republic which we eventually to the third reich and we have dancing becoming a free city and we had got the you know fr- no, no real territorial gain. Britain crossed up the Middle East, which kind of ignores Wilson's points on no territorial gain, which I've find kind of funny that. Yeah, sure, no territorial gain, except maybe not in Europe. The way I look at this, <laughs> well, but, you know. The
0: way the British and French got around that, of course, they are not interested in self-determination, mm. right? Because yes. they have empires, so why would they want that? They play the game with With uh, Wilson because they have to, but of course, they don't want self determination for their own colonial empires. Then is the question well, what do you do with the Ottoman Empire? Right. And the French and British feel like, well, I mean, we fought them, so we need to, we want to gain something from it, but the US won't allow them to openly expand their empires. So, one of the one of the main points of the peace plan is to create the League of Nations, right? Mm. The, so the, the early United yeah. Nations to resolve conflicts.
1: Which was a failure, of course.
0: Eventually it's a failure, but that's not clear at the beginning. At the beginning, it seems like the new and, and awesome thing. Mm. Um, so the way the, the solution that is found is that in the Middle East, they'll say, okay, we're going to create these new states transjordan uh iraq and greater palestine. syria right palestine and transjordan were were kind of uh, at first they were together but yes eventually they were they were divided so and we don't want to it's not okay politically for the french and british to say oh yeah these are just going to be parts of our empires so they say well theoretically we want self-determination for all peoples so mm-hmm. some people though are not 100 percent ready for it yet And that means that a developed country, so-called developed country, will be given a mandate. So be given kind of the responsibility from the League of Nations.
1: Protectorates. Right.
0: To take care of those underdeveloped countries until they're ready for independence in the future. And what that means, of course, is that Britain takes the mandate over Palestine, Transjordan and Iraq. And France takes the mandate over Syria, which eventually becomes Syria and Lebanon, Mm -hmm. divided. Um, And they treat them like a part of their empire. Mm -hmm. So technically, it's not empire. In practice, they treat them like a part of the empire.
1: Yeah, And they had no intention, of course, of letting them gain independence. No, no. But one country that do get independence and I just feel like this is worth mentioning in passing is Ireland because they do get not Northern Ireland but you know Ireland do get independence because they do help fight in the World War which was one one of the deals why they would get independence in I believe 21
0: I think. 22 the free state becomes independent. Many Irish served in the British Army while some other Irish were rebelling against the British at the same time. And then after the war ends, uh, yeah, the Anglo-Irish war breaks out and many Irish veterans who fought with the British in World War I end up fighting against the British in the Anglo-Irish war. And then there's a peace treaty, but some of the Irish feel it's not enough because it's still separated. And because they would still be part of the empire, even though they would have their own government, so then there's a civil war between the Irish themselves. Those this is the creation
1: it, of the IRA, of course, which is a
0: history in itself. That is a history in itself. And eventually then Ireland accepts its status as uh, a free state still connected to the British Empire. And then eventually it becomes a full separate republic on its own. And yes, the genesis of this is, uh, is in the First World War in part as well.
1: Thank you so much for coming on. We're going to round it up there. I, I think, hope you like right. this episode. Before you go, do you have anything you want to promote on the social media? You're on Twitter, I know, and your yeah. YouTube channel, which you forgot to mention. If you listen this far, you can. <laughs> You're more and more. more more welcome to plug any links you like in the description. that you Yeah, want me to yeah I want to thank
0: you for, for having me on the show. I enjoyed uh, I enjoyed talking about it. I'm the host of the Great War channel on YouTube. I'm also the host of the real-time history channel on YouTube. You can also find me on Twitter. And if you would like to support humanitarian aid going to Ukraine, check out the link in, in the description, because uh, I volunteer with a charity here in Vienna, and it's worth uh, your time to have a look.
1: I donated myself, like I said in the beginning, and I highly Thank recommend you. anyone else to do the same. This has been well, that h 12 My name is Alan. Please check out some other other episodes if you liked this episode. you definitely going to find something you like. We are available on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you can find podcasts these days. If you're on iTunes, please leave us a review. That would be most appreciated. Please like, share, and subscribe. And I'll see you next time.